Morning, church. How are you? I think we need to say amen or clap or something for these people and the job they've done. It's good to be here again. I thank you for allowing me to be here. Thank you, Andrew, for the invite. And uh, John, I don't know how much he had to do with it, but thanks to John, wherever he might be today. And appreciate it very much. And I am so grateful for the partnership that Andy invested in CICM through the teenagers last year in giving $3,300 to help in evangelism in the country of India. It's a choice that you made. It was wise, in my opinion. It, the investment is deep, and uh, the dollars go far in the country of India. So thank you, and I am looking forward to, again, the help that will be given through Vacation Bible School, and as they have indicated, they're going to try to raise money to buy a motorcycle, and I commend them for that because that really ups the ante for a young man who's out preaching and the amount of miles he can travel, the amount of people he can see, and ultimately win to Christ. So few dollars here goes a long way there, and especially when you're dealing with uh, something like uh, these folks. Uh, one of my sons, Tim, second born, was invited to drive on the Texas Motor Speedway. And so he went to drive on the Motor Speedway, and before he would drive on that Motor Speedway, he, was, he had to go to a class. And the class was to train him how to drive on this high-speed track. He was to drive a Maserati. I said he was a pastor, didn't I? <laughs> it's not his car. It's somebody else's car. He's driving an old 10-year-old pickup truck. Uh, he was driving a Maserati, and he ultimately drove 157 miles an hour. That was his fastest speed on the speedway. That's a lot. That's pretty fast. I didn't know about it until after it was over. I'd have had a talk with him, <clears throat> even though he was 50 years old. <clears throat> and um, in the class that he took, can you hear me okay? Okay. In the class that he took, they told him something was very fundamental. It took about a two-hour class before they let him on the track. One of the things he had to remember is you always look around the corner to where you want to go. You do not look at the wall or you'll hit the wall. I'm inviting you today in the next few minutes to look around the corner to where you want to go as a church. Anybody can crash and burn. Few learn how to navigate the turns and the obstacles. Let's make a beginning, a first step in doing that this morning. I happen to be fully convinced and persuaded that every member of every church ought to be deeply involved in world evangelism. I believe every person in the church, did you hear me, should be deeply involved in world evangelism. Not just the hired guns, not just the preachers, not just the chosen few, but every person somehow needs to be involved. Let's read 
one Bible verse or two Bible verses together out of the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And he said to them, It is not to you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, my question is, this is a simple sermon, so you can remember this, and I preach it simply because that's me. I'm a simple guy. Number one, who should be involved in world evangelism? It's a test, class. Who do you think? Everyone. Thank you. You're dismissed. Go on home. <laughs> that was the best sermon I've ever heard, eh? somebody say. Everybody should be involved in world missions. It's a simple answer. Everybody should, obviously. But Jesus was giving a mandate to his followers. You go. Uh, we were at a church in Florida doing what we do. <clears throat> and as I was leaving the building, I noticed over the exit door, there was this sign that said, you are now entering the mission field. That's true. We get the feeling that the missions are done here, or we send money and it's done at a place like this somewhere else. But no, the mission field is when we leave this, this place. And so there's a sense in which every one of us here is involved in evangelism. This is your mission field. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. That's in your own hometown. Huntsville, Alabama is your bullseye. That's your target. How are you doing at home? And then he said you to go to Judea. That's a little further out into the broader community. How are you doing about reaching out beyond uh, the people that you know, the connections and networking that you have? And then he said you're to go to Samaria. Oh, boy, that's a troublesome one right there, you know, because now you've got to cross the cultural lines. You've got to go across the, the uh, language lines. You've got you to eat different food. You've got to talk differently than what you did before. Now you're going cross-culture. How are you doing there? Different images, different kind of people. And then he wraps it up by saying, and then you go to the ends of the earth. I've been to the ends of the earth, but most of us will never go to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 tells us that when we read that chapter, there's great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everybody except the apostles scattered and went throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth at that time. And looking back now from the benefit of history, maybe God had dispersed them because they were huddling too long in Jerusalem. Even though the church was scattered by persecution, the twelve apostles remained at home, staying through the problems there, keeping the home base strong, and in the New Testament we read that Peter's primary ministry was in Jerusalem. But Paul was to go to the ends of the earth. So the honest truth is, reality is, most of us in this room will never go past Huntsville. We're going to be Huntsville missionaries. And that's okay. That's not a test of your spiritual maturity if you don't go further than that. 
But I think if we're going to accomplish world evangelism, we're going to need to redefine and rethink our focus on what is a missionary. I'm old enough, I can give you an old version of missionary. The old version of missionary was that some guy had a dramatic call of God on his life to go to the mission field. He is a white guy, he is a middle class guy, he is maybe a rural farm fellow, as it was back in the the day, and you hear the call and you are going to go to Africa, you're going to go to India, you're going to go somewhere, and you're going to learn the language, and you spend your life there. You come home on furlough, and you give a talk to the folks back in the little church that that promised to help support you financially. And uh, back in the day when I grew up, we had slides that they would show. The missionaries come in and show slideshows, no fancy videos, slideshows. And they tell about standing under a tree, talking to 25 people, and that was their little church. And then it all closed at the end with a sunset slide saying, and now there are millions and millions of people yet who need to hear about Christ. Okay, that's cool. And I, my hat's off to them. I can't. I can't carry their bags. I, I'd be humbled in their presence. I never had that experience. Don't want it. Don't expect it. But here's the honest truth. And I'm a truth teller, all right? Here's the truth is we can't do that anymore. The most effective people in winning a nation of people are the nationals. In our case, the best people to win the Indians are Indians. When a guy like me walks in, I'm attractive. Well, that's the wrong word. <laughs> I'm not boasting here. Let's see. I, it's interesting for them to look at a big white guy and listen to him try to talk to them. But I can't do what the native can do. So we need to hold up the hands of those who are there. Find them, support them. The Lord commanded us to go into the world and to preach the gospel. If there's any other motivation, that's fine. But the overriding motivation should simply be that the Lord said, we are to go. He commanded us to go. We should be concerned about lost people. <clears throat> Eva Hart, one of the last survivors of the Titanic, in her last television interview shortly before she died, she remembered like this. She said, I saw the horrors of people sinking, and I heard even more dreadful cries of drowning people. Although 20 lifeboats launched from the Titanic, Most were only partially filled because they left early and people didn't think the ship was really sinking. So most of the passengers who remained on the ship ended up struggling in the icy seas before they drowned. While those in boats waited a safe distance away, lifeboat number 14 did row back into the scene after the ship slipped from sight at 2.20 a.m. That one lifeboat chased cries of the dar- into the darkness, seeking and saving a precious few. But incredibly, no other boat joined in. Most of them were half-filled boats that rode aimlessly into the night. 
just listening to the cries of the lost. I don't need to preach that, do I? I mean, just drive around Huntsville and look at parking lots and churches that are half full, buildings half full, everybody saying they're trying to save the lost. And people are dying and going to hell. People out there want to be saved. They, they really do. And they're just waiting for somebody to come by. How do we do this? Where do we go? Well, you begin locally. Your neighbor, your family, your co-worker, the people you socialize with, anybody that you network with, the parents that are on, have a child on the same baseball team as your child, or same football team. You've got to think locally. You've got to think globally. The scripture plainly speaks that we're not done until all the nations have been reached with the gospel. There's an estimated 1,900 languages that do not have the Bible translated into their, I'm talking about major languages, over a half million people in those, in that people group. I just heard this week there are 6,900 people groups across the, across the world that need to be reached yet for Christ, and the 20 Bible-translating groups have gotten together, which is a miracle in itself. 20 different Bible-translating groups have gotten together, and they've divvied up those countries that do not have a Bible, or those nations of people do not have a Bible in their language, and they have decided who will take which culture, which will take which language, and pioneer Bible translators that we work with some I've taken 350 languages, and that's their target audience. You know, we're familiar with India. There are 11 countries bordering India that have 4,100 people groups who have not heard the story about Jesus. Nearly 50% of the world's population live in these 12 countries, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, and Maldives. 62% of the non-Christian people live in 12 countries. <coughs> if we're going to reach people to Christ, do you think we need to spend all of our time and all of our money working in Huntsville, Alabama, or Houston, Texas, where we live? No. If we're really going to reach as many as we can before Jesus comes, we're going to have to raise our sights a little, widen our focus, and look at places like these countries I just mentioned. <clears throat> Dr. Law, <clears throat> I just heard him tell this story again this week, tells about visiting some of the graduates from the college. <clears throat> the young evangelist told him that he went a three-day's journey over a mountain range into two areas, that are not even mapped by India. The government doesn't even know they're there. <clears throat> this young man came out of a church. Well, one church was started up near the mountains of Himalayas, and then that church started 20 other churches. These are self-supporting, self-sustaining, not supported by American dollars at all. These are self-sustaining churches. One young man in one of these churches 
came up and said he wanted to be an evangelist, but it turned out he couldn't read or write. They sent him to the Bible Academy, trained him how to read, how to write, how to story tell the scriptures, sent him back after time. He went up over the mountains, three days journey, two mountain ranges, went to villages not on the map, and when he got there, the locals saw him, and they recognized him, obviously, as a stranger. They approached, the men approached him, what do you want? He said, I've come to tell you how everybody in your village can live forever. Well, Hindus have a million gods, and they have gods for everything. So they were interested. Tell us about him. <clears throat> he said, well, I can't. I'm so tired from traveling. I must rest. He laid down, he said, let me rest a while. He laid down and slept for four hours. When he woke up, there was 300 people standing around him going like, who's this guy, what's the story? He took a drink of water and stood and told the story about Jesus Christ and how they could receive him and become people who would live forever. <clears throat> Before that meeting was over, he went out to a river and baptized 38 people. And the next day, they went to another village <clears throat> and did the same. <clears throat> Dr. Law went to these same villages and preached again. And uh, they wanted his help, and he said, I cannot help you, but what this gentleman has already told you about the story about Christ. I'm just saying, folks, let's be, let's, let's have a moment of real honesty. Within five miles of this building, there are a lot of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Really. Oh, they've heard the message. They, they've heard Jesus. But they've not had the opportunity to personally respond to him. And if it's true here, you know it's true all over the world. In India, recently they discovered there was a tribe of people that they thought was about 15 million people who did not have a Bible in their own language. CICM partnered with Pioneer Bible Translators, and they translated the Bible, began to translate the Bible into Boondaily language. But the Pioneer folks, before they did that, they went and discovered for themselves, not, did not take Ajay's word for it, went and discovered for themselves there weren't 15 million people in this tribe, there were 25 million people. Now today they can sit down and read in their own language, the Bundeli language, the story of Christ. Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach except they be sent? Another question is, when do we go? When? When do we go? Can I just make it simple? We need to get after it right now. Seriously. ICOM's convention theme this next year, if I remember right, goes like this. The church is no longer on the home field. Think about it. Um, 
You've heard of ISIS, right? ISIL, whatever. Do I need to say that we just need to get after it? Not only here at home, but around the world. Our country, to me, I'm sorry, is moving in a very uncomfortable direction every day. Including the last Supreme Court rendering. And Christians... Maybe the good to come out of this is that the church has always done well under persecution. But I'm saying those that are faking it are going to be found out pretty soon. Because persecution's coming. Christian Standard, I know you guys get those. I saw them in the lobby. Christian Standard, about three years ago, published a series of articles about churches. One week it had article about megachurches and studied everything about megachurches, the pastor's name, how many elders, how many Sunday school or not, and all that. And then they did a mid-sized church one week, and then the next week they did small churches. And then the fourth week they compiled the information they received out of that study. And the study concluded this in this one category that I wanted to mention to you. They took how much money was made, how much money, the income of all of these churches put together, and then another category, how many baptisms there were. How much money did we all give? How many baptisms did we have? And here is the discovery. That in America, it costs us $27,400 to baptize one person. Do <laughs> you hear me? $27,400 to baptize one person. Okay, now if that's your wife, your son, your daughter, your grandkid, and your neighbor, friend, and you give thirty grand to get them baptized, cool. Let's spend the money. But if we're going to win as many as we can by the time Jesus gets here, may I suggest to you that if you would give, for example, no pressure, but just for example, $27,400 to the folks in India. That can put six evangelists out on the field to preach every day for a whole year and rent buildings for them to have for their little churches in. And I promise you, they'll not baptize one or ten but hundreds, hundreds of people. How can you help if I stay home? What can I do? Well, you ought to be supportive by those who go. Give funds, praying for their safety, watch out over their families when they're gone, write emails, stay in touch with the, with the, with, with the natives, supply their needs as closely as you can, in whatever way, food, clothing, shelter, if possible, send teaching materials. Let me underline one, though. <clears throat> one that there's no mistake about. They need your financial support. I'm not talking about Central India. I'm talking about every missionary that you support. They need your money. Uh, before my our first trip to India, <clears throat> I had an Indian say to us that 
Americans make a mistake. They come over and see all the poverty, and they want to make they want to feed everybody, and they see people without clothes, and want to clothe everybody. And he said, "That's fine." He said, "But we don't need we don't need food and clothes. What we need is the gospel. We need the gospel because." Once people get the gospel, then everything else falls into place. There's plenty to eat if we quit, quit worshiping a cow. You know. Plenty to eat if we quit worshiping other forms of life. Rats and mice and so forth. And so the Hindus who have this notion that you're reincarnated and coming around again and again, Afraid that if they kill somebody, they're killing their mother-in-law who died a few years ago. So when it comes to Christ coming into this culture, it changes the belief system, and then that changes conditions. We've been to Luck now. It's a shepherd-class community. The Lucknow people and the shepherd class tell their kids they don't need to go to school, don't need to worry about school because you're going to spend your life tending the cows, sheep, and goats all the rest of your life. I'll give you a short version of the story. So some families, Christian families, reached out and told them their importance. These are Hindus. Told them their importance in God's eyes. That when Jesus was born, their God sent angels to announce to shepherds. First announcement was made to this low caste, low life shepherds that the son was born. And that Jesus became the good shepherd and he tells a story about 99 safe in the fold and there's one lost I go out and try to save the one. And as a result of those people being told about Jesus Christ, there was a revival broke out, and 5,000 shepherds came to Christ. Somebody say amen to that, huh? Yeah. And we were there one night when we, when we baptized 32 people. Kind of clandestinely at night, but we did. We were in a meeting one day, and there's a little lady by the name of Moni. Moni had watched the the bad guys come in one night, they, they surrounded their house, her, dad, her husband was a pastor of a church, an evangelist, and they came around the house and announced that they, that they needed to deny Christ or they were going to do harm to them. This is August 25, 2008. Forty extremists came in the house finally, beat them, beat her husband, killed him, cut his body up with machetes in front of her, Told her she was too beautiful to be killed, so 40 men raped her repeatedly throughout the night until she passed out. Then she was taken to a first aid station. Well, long story short, she now ministers with CICM, going to village to village, and tells her story. This is what I have done, this is what happened to me. I still love the Lord, I will not deny my faith. And I want to serve Jesus. What's your problem? <clears throat> I want to tell you about it. I want to show you a video of one gentleman. His name is Faraz. Faraz was in the uh, mafia. Faraz 
in the mafia did everything bad you could do. Drugs, prostitution, stealing, killing. Stood in people's homes, ate their food while he stood in the blood that, uh, that they had shed on the floor. He was just a bad guy. Now, I want you to see a little bit of his story. And he has one lady, a Christian woman, who basically said to him, who do you think you are anyway? And it brought conviction to him, and she talked to him about the Lord. He was converted, and you saw the numbers. Now he established nine churches and baptized thousands of people and because of one person's testimony. We went to Lucknow. We met Faraz. We went to one little village. And this village had 720 adults live in the village. We're told it's a Christian village. We went there and about 500, some of them were gone, but 500 or so met us under a tree. That's their place. They go to church. And we had church there, and the kids sang for us and all that. It was a terrific deal and great experience. And, uh, but here's the point. They told us that there are 720 adults who live there, and everybody in that village is a Christian. Now, I've been in a lot of villages. I mean, I've been in a lot of places, including my neighborhood, I've never been any place else except with this guy right here where you'd say everybody in our village is a, is a Christian. Sony, warrior by birth, Brahmin's class, warrior class in India. 
hired by the government to persecute Christians. That was his job. Burn the Bibles, destroy churches, persecute Christians if need be, kill them. He'd killed some. He said he'd taken the sword, kill people. His wife got sick. He prayed to all of his gods. His, his gods lined a, a, a place in the house. And he prayed to all of his gods, and she still didn't get better. And finally, some, one preacher came to him one day, an evangelist, and said, Why don't you pray to Jesus? He will hear your prayers. And he said, uh, But I don't believe in Jesus. He said, Well, try it anyway. Just believe and pray. So he went home, took down all of his gods. His wife was about to die. He didn't, he thought, try anything. So he went, took the gods down and began to pray every day to Jesus. And then days went by and his wife began to get better. She was near death's door, but now she's up out of the bed, walking, holding the hands on the wall while she walks. And, and finally he goes, and he goes to the place where he knows there's Christians who meet. There's a church building. He goes there. And he wants to become a Christian because his wife is getting better. And so he gets there and he knows it's church time, but nobody's at church. He can't figure it out. He waits for an hour. He sits inside the building. Nobody comes. And then an hour and a half and nobody's there. And finally he walks outside and down the street a little ways. He sees the evangelist and a few people standing there. And he said, are you not going to have church today? And they said, well, not till you leave. He was afraid they were going to be killed. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. He came to Christ, and that guy has planted five churches, baptized several thousand people, 3,000 people, and now has a price on his head by the bad guys. What do you think? How's life going for you anyway, anyhow? I'm going to ask the priest team to come and get in place, get ready. The, uh, the mission that we represent, Central India Christian Mission, Dr. Law and their team of 500, out the road just a ways from the main headquarters of the mission, they bought a little piece of ground, I'd say 15 acres, and on that piece of ground, they began to build little homes. Oh, two-bedroom, kitchen, dining room, or kitchen, living room, kind of, and then a small bath. I'm talking small bathroom. And uh, they've got five of them built. They want to build 15, I believe, maybe 20, in a little circle on this property. You, you know who they're for? They're for these people to get beat up, these people to get attacked, people whose families have been, members of their family have been killed, people who have been abused, and they bring them there for a period of time to heal and get prepared so they can go back out and tell the story about Jesus Christ. College Heights Church in Joplin, Missouri built the first three homes there. I'm just asking you today to think, who will win your neighbor, if not you? And who will evangelize your street, if not you? And who will get that neighborhood near Jerusalem 
and then he'll get Huntsville, your county. You get it? Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you'll reap if you don't faint. Keep on keeping on. Reach out in your area. Don't get tired. Press on. Do the work, the Bible says, of an evangelist. And God will bless you. Brother Andy, would you come, please?